Let's read together tonight as we begin our Bible study the entirety of Hebrews 12th chapter. Beginning at verse 1. Hear now God's word. Therefore let us also, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with endurance the grace that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that has endured such gainsaying of sinners against himself, that you wax not weary, you wax not weary, fainting in your souls. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which reasons with you as sons. My son, regard not lightly the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art reproved of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. It is for chastening that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father chastens not? But if you are without chastening, whereof all have been made partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have the fathers of our flesh to chasten us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed good to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. All chastening seems for the present to be not joyous but grievous. Yet afterward it yields peaceable fruit unto them that have been exercised thereby, even the fruit of righteousness. Wherefore, lift up the hands that hang down on the palsied knees, and make straight paths for your feet, that that which is lame be not turned out of the way, but rather be healed. Follow after peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest there be any man that falls short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby the many be defiled lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one mess of meat sold his own birthright. For you know that even when he afterward desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for a change of mind, though he sought it diligently with tears. For you are not come unto a mouth that might be touched, and that burned with fire, and unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that no more word should be spoken unto them, for they could not endure that which was enjoined. If even a beast touched them off, it shall be stoned. And so fearful was the appearance that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But you are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable hosts of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaks, for if they escape not when they refused him that warned them on earth, much more shall not we escape who turn away from him that warns from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more will I make to tremble, not the earth only, but also the heaven. 
And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, as the things that have been made, that those things which are not shaken may remain. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace whereby we may offer service well-pleasing to God, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's why we read God's word. Tonight I'd like to focus on verses 25 to 29, try to finish chapter 12 of Hebrews. If all goes well, and next week we'll be in chapter 13, the last one. It's been quite a while since we've been in this book, and I was asked last week, uh, if I finish early chapter 13, what will we do to finish out this quarter? And what I'm proposing is that I go back and, uh, and do some of the introductory lessons for those who didn't hear them, and also do a summary of some of the topics in the book of Hebrews. So we'll probably stay on Hebrews till the end of this term together, even if we finish chapter 13 a bit early. Anyway, chapter 12 tonight, verse 25, the first verse we'll deal with. See that you refuse not him that speaks. I know that the service that doesn't control this, so it's possible to turn it off altogether. I'm not aware of how to do it. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. It's uh, See to it that you refuse not him who speaks. It's a very simple sentence. But just think about how much is enjoined upon us by that. The Bible says you should see to it. You should be taking thought for yourself that you not refuse God when he speaks. I want to focus on that for a moment as we begin tonight because, you know, if you'll stop and reflect on it, it seems a strange command to make. But you know, if God is speaking, why would you refuse? I want to suggest it's not quite that simple. It's not a matter of our saying, this is God saying to me, do this, don't do that, and I'm going to refuse it. I think we have a tendency, because we know you're not supposed to refuse what God says, we have a tendency to not hear what God says to us. And therefore what we're refusing is not God's word at all. The Bible exhorts us to examine our hearts to see what kind of barriers there are to hearing the word of God. See to it that you don't refuse what God is saying to you. And the suggestion is, therefore, that we have a tendency, even when God is speaking, to not account it as being God speaking, to refuse it, and to do so just because we say, well, God wouldn't say that sort of thing, or to not look into things. This is very frightening to me in terms of uh, Christianity today, but also in terms of uh, not just Christianity in general, but what I see in counseling people in our own congregation, looking at myself. The problem is, we assume we know what God says. We presume that in advance we know what God would say on a subject. Stop and ask yourself, how much of your Christianity has been forged through diligent study, textual study of the Word of God, comparing passages, being diligent as a student, day by day? How much of your Christianity is formed by that procedure? How much of your Christianity comes by osmosis? catching it like the measles. You know, we, we hear Christians talking, 
and we kind of pick up on their theology, and we make that our theology, don't we? I'll admit that I do that. I don't think it's a good thing to do, but it's, uh, it's easy. Especially when it comes to what God wants in our lives. We tend to know, we think, we tend to know in advance the limits of what God would ask of us. Now, if I assume falsely in advance that God would never push me so far as to ask this, and in fact God does do that, then I'm not being careful to make sure I don't refuse the one who is speaking. We need to listen very carefully to God. A few years ago, I remember preaching the Gospel of Luke on this subject of how we hear the Word of God. And uh, I likened uh, two different uh, radio broadcasts. What, what we do in response to two different kinds of radio broadcasts. Imagine yourself driving on the road. Let's say you're driving up to San Francisco. You've got a long drive. You turn on the radio. You want some background music, right? So you're driving along, and you're looking at the scenery. You're maybe talking to the people in your car, and the radio's going. Okay? Now, that's one kind of listening. Someone might say, are you listening to the radio? Yes. But then think if you were the, um, the attendant in one of these... Uh, emergency vehicles that goes out and the hospital was radioed into the car what you need to do to make sure this patient doesn't die, to make sure the blood pressure stays up and the breathing stays all right. Remember, just think of how you would be hanging on every word coming from the hospital. What do I do next? What do I do next? How do we listen to the Word of God? I think we don't listen to it like the ambulance, ambulance attendant, really. We don't listen to it like, this is life and death stuff. I've got to hear this. I've got to make very sure I've got this down. We tend to listen to the Word of God like background music in our lives. A lot of stuff coming in, and we got the Word of God there, too. The author of Hebrews says, no, you must see to it that you not refuse the one who speaks. You need to do to yourself what is necessary to open up your ears and your eyes and your heart to receive the Word of God. And then make sure that you're not rationalizing it. That's a tough thing to do because when you rationalize something, your tendency is to rationalize your rationalizing of it too. And so if someone were to come to you and say, and I think you're not really hearing what God wants you to hear in this passage. Well, you wouldn't automatically, if you were rationalizing away the passage, say, oh, well, I'm rationalizing the passage, and so I, I guess I don't hear that. Well, you'd, you'd tend to also have an excuse for why you're rationalizing, why you're not hearing it that way. The author of Hebrews says, now you be careful. See to it that you're not refusing him that speaks. And here's why. And he likens our situation to the Old Testament account of hearing God's word at Mount Sinai. If they escape not when they refused him that warned on earth, much more shall not we escape to turn away from him that warns from heaven. Now, who is it that's speaking here? The author has put an emphasis upon God speaking in the epistle, and most recently as well. First of all, in the epistle in general, he opens the epistle, chapter 1, verse 2, referring to God speaking at the end of these days. God having of old time spoken unto the fathers and the prophets by divers portions and in divers manners, has at the end of these days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. God is now speaking to us by means of a son, not by means of Moses or by a prophet 
or by a theophany, but he's speaking specifically by means of his son. And then in verse 24, preceding the verse we're on right now, chapter 12, we have just read that we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. We come to Jesus, who is God speaking to us, but more specifically, we come to the blood of Jesus that is speaking. And the blood of Jesus doesn't speak as Abel's crying out for vengeance. The blood of Jesus speaks peace. The blood of Jesus speaks forgiveness. The blood of Jesus calls us to be a new people, to follow God in faith, and to repent of our sins, and to obey whatsoever he has commanded us. The author says, so don't refuse the one who speaks. For if they refused, the Old Testament saints, if they escaped not when they refused him that warned on earth. Verse 19 may be a reference to the refusal of the people and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they heard, uh, excuse me, which voice they that heard entreated that no word more should be spoken unto them. That may be a reference to the fact that the Israelites at Mount Sinai, having heard God, Speak, quaked before that and then said, No more, send Moses, we'll listen to Moses. And then, of course, even that wasn't enough, as Paul points out in 2 Corinthians 3. When Moses came back from the mount, the people couldn't endure even looking upon his face. He had been so transformed by his experience of being in the presence of God that they said, Put a veil on your face. So not only did they say, Don't talk to us directly, God, talk to the mediator, but they asked the mediator to put a veil on his face. They wanted that distance. Now the author in verse 25 when he speaks of uh, this refusing the one who warned them on earth may be referring to that. That they said, don't talk to us directly. We can't take this anymore. And, and Moses put this veil on their face. I tend to think, although that's not a bad interpretation, I tend to think that the author is generalizing though about the refusal of God's people to hear his word throughout their wilderness experience. Earlier in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, the author has said that they could not enter into God's rest because they refused to believe what God said. They refused to obey Him. And I think probably, therefore, this is a more general reference to the experience of the Israelites continually stiff-necked, continually uh, plugging up their ears and not hearing what God had to say. How long was God acting on Yes, God appeared specifically uh, for the deliverance of his law and especially the tables of the covenant. And as I recall, it's 40 days that um, that, that transpired. I'd have to look it up. Now, who is it that warned on earth back then? Was it Moses? So that the contrast now is between if they didn't uh, survive when they refused to hear Moses on earth, how much more will we not survive if we refuse to hear Jesus from heaven? Is that the contrast? Or is the contrast, if they, uh, if they uh, escaped not when they refused him that warned on earth, meaning God warning on earth, how much more will we not escape if we refuse to hear God warning from heaven? That is, is there a contrast between circumstances or a contrast and a contrast between speakers. Who spoke on earth? Now, you should be able to look at your Bibles. I've taught you something about contextual exegesis. 
You should be able to look at your Bibles and answer that question for yourselves, even though the commentators are divided. It's not hard to prove the right answer to that. Who was speaking on earth? According to verse 25. Was it Moses? Of course, it was God's word through Moses, but specifically, is the author saying, if they, um, they refused Moses and didn't get away with it, you better not refuse Jesus speaking from heaven, or is he saying if they refused God who spoke on it? I, I don't know. I'd, I'd say that it's God who's going to speak in both situations. I think you're right. Can you tell me why you're right? Um, well, because Moses only spoke what he heard from God in the time of Well, that's true, but, it, you know, in that, it could be Moses speaking as the mediator of the covenant, while Jesus speaks as the mediator of the better covenant. Verse 21, give a thing, take a reference. I think that would support this, but it wouldn't prove it necessarily. It's an extra thing, David. And his voice shook the earth then, and now his promise saying. Yeah, there's there's a speaking going on then and now. Verse 25 says the speaking was on earth, now it's from heaven. But verse 26 says whose voice then shook the earth, now he's going to make not only the earth tremble, but all of creation. And in verse 26, it's clear it's the same speaker, right? Then and now is God speaking. So in verse 25, what we're being told is that the Hebrews in the wilderness did not escape when they did not listen to God warning on earth. Deuteronomy 5, verses 4 and 5, uh, turning the Bibles, See, the emphasis placed upon God speaking at that time. Deuteronomy 5, verses 4 and 5. Jehovah spake with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. I stood between Jehovah and you at that time to show you the word of Jehovah, for you were afraid because of the fire and went not up the mount. And so the emphasis then is that God was speaking to them. Now, the author of Hebrews incorporates something further in the Old Testament. We're going to do a little study of this to understand what he's doing. Turn to the prophecy of Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. I'm going to trouble. Look at Zephaniah. Haggai. Haggai 2 and verse 6. For thus saith Jehovah Post, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the precious things of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith Jehovah of Post. Notice that in verse 5, there's a reference made to the covenant God made when Israel came out of Egypt. And when God's Spirit abode among you, he says, don't fear. But now what I'm telling you is, when you came out of Egypt, and I covenant with you at Sinai, and I shook the earth, I want you to not going to shake it again. The prophecy is made that he will shake not just the mountain Sinai, not just the earth, but he will shake the heavens 
and the sea and the dry land so that the entire created order is going to be shaken. The author of Hebrews incorporates this prophecy of Haggai as he refers to the Old Testament experience of God's word. That procedure, by the way, theologically is noteworthy in that the author tends to see patterns throughout the Old Testament. He, picked, he, he, not, he not only goes back to Sinai, but he says this experience of shaping has a reference further in the Old Testament, and if we're going to understand where we are today, we have to pick up that reference. He ties it all together. And he says, See that you refuse not him that speaks, for if they escape not when they refused him that warned on earth, how much more shall not we escape who turn away from him that warns from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised. Not threatened. He has promised. And Haggai, saying what? Yet once more will I make the tremble, not the earth only, but also the heaven. Actually, Haggai is more detailed than that. He mentions the sea and the dry land. The time is coming when the whole creation is going to be shaken. The whole point here is, remember the Old Testament experience of God's word. Now something greater is happening, from the lesser to the greater. What kind of argument do we call that? A fortiori. that's right. From the lesser to the greater, and in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, we have seen this kind of reasoning already in the epistle. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, having had that the first was spoken through the Lord, uh, that which was confirmed unto us by them that heard? So if they didn't escape, how much more will we not escape? The salvation they had was nothing by comparison. Now the author says the shaking they went through was nothing by comparison. And you should have expected that, because Haggai said the day is coming when God's going to shake everything up again. Do you feel the shaking? What kind of shaking should we be expecting given last week's lesson? Is the physical shaking of the earth what's really important? Is that where we feel reality, where God is finally working by shaking us? I mean, literally shaking us? Well, Haggai says that God's going to shake the entire created order, and that shouldn't be likened to the biggest earthquake you've ever experienced. The shaking that's taking place is going to accomplish something in the spiritual domain. What will happen when God shakes the earth again? verse 26. His voice then shook the earth, but now he had promised, saying, Yet once more will I make the tremble, not the earth only, but also the heavens. And this word, yet once more, signifies what? And Haggai said, Again God will shake, or God will further shake the earth. What does that signify? What does that point to? What kind of shaking is this going to be? It's right in the text in front of you, verse 27. Right. Going to separate what? What from what? There you go. The shakable and the unshakable. Right. Good. Take um, take dominoes you know, and, and drill holes through them and bolt them to a board. And then take other dominoes and just stand them up on the board. Then shake the board. What's going to happen? 
Yeah, the, the shakeable dominoes are going to go down, and the unshakable ones are going to remain. And that's the image here. That there, there are things which are permanent and things which are impermanent. And the reason why God is shaking all of creation now is so that he can get rid of the impermanent. And, and he have only the permanent remain. Psalm 102 is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. And thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou continuest. And they all shall wax old, as does a garment. And as a mantle shalt thou roll them up as a garment, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Okay. The created order is not permanent. The created order will be shaken by God, and we'll see that it's really not something that is firm and reliable, that is going to go on and on and on. God is shaking the whole created order to show that it's insecure, because he wants to remove that. In 2 Peter 3, verses 10 to 12, Peter refers to to the same kind of thing, but he uses a different image, not shaking, but purifying. Second Peter chapter 3, at the 10th verse. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall be dissolved with fervent heat, and the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing that these things are thus all to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy living and godliness? looking for and earnestly desiring the coming of the day of God, by reason of which the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Here the image is that of fire being applied to the earth, and the elements of earth are going to dissolve. I realize it's popular to interpret that literally, that uh, you know, the rock of Gibraltar will melt when God applies fire to this earth. And I, and I can't tell you that that is not what the verse teaches, but I do think that's not the emphasis throughout the Bible when it speaks of fire being applied to this world. It's usually a reference to spiritual purifying. And what's going to happen is that God is going to apply the fire of his sanctifying spirit. And what's going to happen is all that which is dross and all that which is evil is going to be burned off. Remember Jesus' teaching when uh, John the Baptist was baptizing? that uh, the day of baptism is coming that will not be done with water, but a baptism of fire. What is the baptism of fire? Especially given John's preaching about, you know, the vipers and the snakes. Because who warned you from the wrath of God to come? You know, when God applies the heat of his judgment, all of you will go scampering. Jesus says, I'm going to baptize you with fire. And on the day of Pentecost, fire rests upon God's people. Tongues of fire rest upon them. And what is the significance of that? I'll be honest with you. The Pentecostalists have got it all wrong. The emphasis is in the wrong place. The point is that God is now applying that purifying effect to the earth. The fire is being applied and the only thing that is going to survive should be his people. And so fire rests upon their heads showing that they aren't consumed even if the bush where Moses met Jehovah was not consumed by the fire. Okay, so we have a different image in the Bible of fire being applied and, 
and God's people surviving through it, and that which is imperishable, that which is spiritually wholesome and pertains to the eternal order, will survive. In the author of Hebrews' case, he uses the image of shaking. Same point, though. God's going to separate out those things which are lasting, those things which are not. And he's going to do it by shaking violently the entire earth. Revelation 21, verses 1 and following. There's another reference to this. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth are passed away, and the sea is no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. All the old things are going to pass away. God is someday going to make everything new. Now you're going to put on your thinking caps for a minute because everything I've said thus far might lead you to believe that the author is referring only to the final day. Now 2 Peter 3 talks about the end of this world when everything dissolves by fervent heat and so forth. We might think that the author of Hebrews is likewise saying the day is coming where God will shake the earth so that those things which are not shaken may remain. And that will be the ultimate expression of God's uh, God's discerning will where the eternal order and that which pertains to uh, divine things will remain those things which are part of sin and the old order will pass away. But verse 28 tells us something which provides another perspective, an additional perspective that we have taken into account. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace whereby we may offer service well pleasing to God. The author says, God shook the world of China. Aggie, I promise, he'll shake the world again. And you can expect that in the future he'll shake this world and only that which pertains to the eternal order will remain. And then he turns and says, but you've received the unshakable kingdom now. You're already living in that eschatological day. You're already living in that day where God has established the unshakable. That's exciting. If it feels like that, my guess is we tend to think, no, we're really being buffeted around and shaken all the time. The author says, but you've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God is already doing this work. Some of you will be familiar with the language that is used in popular parlance in theological circles, the kingdom of God being already, but not yet. That is to say, the promises of God's eternal order are beginning to be realized and experienced now. The kingdom of God is already here, and yet it's not consummated. It's not yet. God hasn't shaken everything. That's why we still have tribulation in this world. That's why we still have difficulty. That's why unrighteousness has not been completely restrained. But God will not just wait to the end time to shake the world. God has begun to shake it now interesting in Acts 17 that the apostles were accused of those who turned the world upside down. So the preaching of the gospel is shaking the world. God's already active in this world. And that's one of the reasons the world doesn't like us. One of the reasons the world doesn't like the church. If the church could just be, you know, we could just have some kind of detente with the church, you know. You go your way, we go ours, and so forth. The church can't allow that. The kingdom of God doesn't allow for peaceful coexistence with unrighteousness. 
We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is on heaven. And so God is now shaking the world, and we know that from verse 28, because we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and we're receiving it now. It's already here. Look at chapter 12, verse 2. Looking into Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised and shame, and sat down where? At the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus has been enthroned at God's right hand. He's not waiting for his kingdom. He's now ruling in his kingdom and ruling over all the earth. Verse 22 tells us that we have come into Mount Zion to the city of the living God in the heavenly Jerusalem. We are now experiencing the kingdom of God even in our present lives. And as the author says in verse 28, we're receiving the kingdom. And the kingdom is described as the unshakable kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, what should we do, therefore? Since the prophecy of Haggai is now being fulfilled and will be consummated in the future, what should we do about that? Well, first, we don't refuse him who is speaking from heaven. And we've already seen that. They, did, they didn't survive when they refused hearing God on earth. You better believe you won't survive if you don't listen to God speaking out from heaven. But God is shaking the earth, and he has put us within an unshakable kingdom, his own kingdom. Verse 28 says, Therefore, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace whereby we may offer service well-pleasing to God with reverence and awe. Now, my translation is, let us have grace, and I don't think that is um, the best way to take this. You know. <coughs> Exactly. I think gratitude rather than grace is the sense of the Greek word here. Perhaps we could use the word thanksgiving. Let us have thanksgiving. Because God's put you into his unshakable kingdom, you ought to be grateful. You ought to be really thankful for what God has done. I'm going to take a moment to talk about gratitude, the virtue of gratitude in Christian life. Um, in doing it, God indicts me because... Um, I admit I don't often act grateful when I'm grateful for the promise of God. It's easy to focus on the things that have not gone well and what God hasn't given us rather than to look at those things that he has. In Romans 1, verse 21, Romans 1, 21, Paul indicates that the root of all ungodliness, the root of all ungodliness is a lack of gratitude to God. Because Knowing God, they glorified him not as God, neither gave thanks, but became vain in their reasoning, and their senseless heart was darkened. You see kind of the root of the darkening of the human heart, and that we will not give God the glory, and praise him, and thank him in the way that we should. Paul says, this is where he's indicted in the Roman Empire. All the evil of the Roman Empire goes back to this, to those about whom he's speaking would not give thanks to God. Since we have been placed in an unshakable kingdom, the author of Hebrews says, let us have gratitude, let us have thankfulness, whereby we may offer service well pleasing to God with reverence and awe. Second Corinthians 9.15, Paul says, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Thanks be to God. I can't even put it into words. 
the goodness and the greatness of what God has given them. We need that attitude of Paul so that we might constantly, through all circumstances, learn to pray with thanksgiving. Three verses in the New Testament that you probably already know, but are worth reviewing. Ephesians 5, 20. Ephesians 5, 20th verse. Giving thanks always for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God even the Father. Giving thanks always for all things. I have a message given many years ago now um, titled uh, Unnatural Thanksgiving, uh, given in another form under the title Tough Thanks. The author, uh, well, Paul, the author of Ephesians, tells us that we should give thanks to God for everything. Our tendency is to sort out our experiences into those things that we're happy about and those things we're unhappy about. Naturally, we give thanks to God for those things that suit our ends and purposes and desires. But Paul says, give thanks to God for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Colossians 3.17. And whatsoever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you're doing, no matter where you are, give thanks through Jesus. To God the Father. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus to you. In everything give thanks. Constant theme in the New Testament, yet we don't, we don't develop that virtue, do we? We don't cultivate that in ourselves. A grateful spirit. We get grumpy, we complain, the Bible says that if we understood the unspeakable gift of God's riches in Christ, that we just constantly be thankful. That's a high standard to attain. As I told you, I don't attain that. We need to keep these verses before our minds. Because the author of Hebrews says that if we are in an unshakable kingdom, we have to have this thanksgiving whereby we may offer worship well-pleasing to God with reverence and awe. How do you come to church on Sunday morning? With what attitude and spirit do you come to church? Sometimes I come into the congregation and um, stand before you in the pulpit, and it just seems like uh, well, many faces are bespeaking the desire to be elsewhere. You didn't know you gave yourself away like that, but you do. Sometimes we come to church and we're grumpy because we didn't prepare for the Sabbath by getting enough sleep or reading the passage that was announced in the communique and, and meditating on it and looking forward to the Word of God. We come to church, and isn't it true, we sometimes come to church in the sense of, well, God expects me to do it, so I've got to get up and do it. Now, is that offering worship that's well-pleasing to God? God? God really impressed with that? You see, you can fool your fellow believers and that you know, your heart's in the right place and so forth. But God sees right through us. He has x-ray vision. He sees our hearts. And if you're standing there singing this hymn and probably not even reflecting on the words that you're singing, if you're letting your mind wander when the uh, elder is praying to God, when the Word of God is being expounded and you're not hanging on every word and applying it to your heart, 
If you're not coming grateful that God has said, here's another day to come into my presence, to hear my word, and to worship my name, then you're not offering worship that is well-pleasing to God. The impulse proper worship is thanksgiving. So I would uh, suggest as a spiritual exercise that on Sunday mornings you get up individually, some of you may be in your families, and say, before we go to church, we're going to have our own thank you session before God. We're going to go to church, and the last thing we're going to have on our minds when we go to church is thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Worship must be offered by the Christian. It's interesting, in the book of Hebrews, the worship that we offer is stylized after the Levitical service of the Old Testament. Hebrews 13, verse 15, for instance. Through him, that is through Christ, let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is the fruit of lips which make confession to his name. When we come to church, we're supposed to be acting like Levitical priests, and we're supposed to bring a sacrifice with us. And what sacrifice do we offer in the New Covenant? It's not the bloody sacrifice of animals. Christ has taken the place of God. But we are supposed to offer up a sacrifice. And what's the sacrifice? The sacrifice of lips to confess him and praise him. The author says that our worship should be proper worship, whereby we may offer service of worship well-pleasing to God. And notice what kind of worship is well-pleasing to God? With reverence and awe. We often um, hear people debating different styles in different churches in their worship service. And I think the prevailing attitude of people who are not hanging on the Word of God but picking up their theology by osmosis, this, you know, what is the group feeling? The prevailing idea is it's, it's really the thought that counts. God doesn't really care about the manner of our worship. It's just that our hearts are in the right place. So we can really do whatever we want in worship. And some people have personalities that are drawn toward the more charismatic, maybe even the kind of the holy roller sort of worship service. And others are drawn to a high church worship, and, and others are drawn to a, a worship that focuses upon exposition and education. And that's really okay. It's kind of different strokes for different folks, right? The author of Hebrews says, no, that our worship must be characterized not only by the impulse of thanksgiving, but by what? Reverence and awe. We come to the worship service, we should leave with a sense of awe that we stood in the presence of God. So when you hear the Word of God preached, and you hear the Word of God being read, and we pray and come into the very presence of God with our petitions, do we leave that experience in awe? Do we leave in a sense of reverence and respect for God? Um, I don't think it's prejudicial of me to say that uh, I don't think God wants us to come and be on a buddy-buddy basis with him in worship. This attitude that we can just, you know, have this good time and be free and easy. And God says, you need to realize who I am. You need to be grateful to him. And you say, well, Dr. Bonson, this is just your downer personality coming through. Look what the next verse says. Why must our worship be in reverence and awe before God? Because our God is a consumer power. Deuteronomy 4, verse 24. Mm -hmm. 
Verse 23 says, Take heed unto yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of Jehovah your God, with the covenant of Jehovah your God, which he made with you, and make you a greater image in the form of anything which Jehovah thy God hath forbidden thee. For Jehovah thy God is a devouring fire, a jealous God. Why must Israel make sure it doesn't create worship after its own imagination, an image, imagination, see the connection there? Worship must not be according to the dictates and desires, the plans and imagination of man. Why must there be this regulation upon worship? Because God is a consuming fire. What we call the regulative principle of worship is founded in that we have no right to come into the presence of God except on His terms, in the way that He ordains, doing those things which He has prescribed for us. <coughs> Following these words in verse 26, For if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, and a fierceness of fire which shall devour the adversaries. Remember that when we come to church this Sunday. We come into the presence of God as His people. We're not just coming to a mere thing like Mount Sinai, which if even a beast touched the mountain would be stoned to death. We're not coming just to this mere firestorm and the shaking and quaking of the earth. We're coming into the very presence of God, and God is a consuming fire. And God will consume His adversaries. Are we able to undergo the fire of God's refinement? Are we part of that kingdom that will not be shaken down as God shakes the earth today? The God of Sinai is the God of heavenly Zion as well. Every Lord's Day we come to heavenly Zion and we worship before Him. And we need to remember that our worship must be grateful, whereby we can offer service as appropriate to Him with awe and reverence. Because if that is not the way in which we approach God, we will be consumed by the adversaries. Our God is a consuming fire. Maybe that scares you off. As I am tonight, I just want to remind you the only way in which we can undergo that firestorm of judgment, the only way we can come into the presence of God and not be consumed is that we the person of Jesus Christ. Only as we approach God through Christ, and only as our worship is in His name, can we now stand before Him in this new covenant and be confident that the tongue of fire will be upon us. And like uh, the bush at Sinai, we will not be consumed. We will not be consumed because we're protected by Christ Himself. Be careful that you don't refuse the one who's speaking from heaven. For our God's any questions on tonight's lesson? Yes. This, this idea of um, tongues, fiery tongues of judgment, um, it appears also in Revelation, the, the tongues coming out of the mouth of Christ. Is that being connected? Um, it doesn't seem to me that there's a literary or intended theological connection.
quite against them with the sword of his mouth. This, I, this idea of the, of the tongue and the judgment being mixed together, I'm just wondering what kind of connection there might be between that and the giving of the Holy Spirit and the fiery tongues that are designed to shape your tongue. Yeah, I'm not... Uh I'm not convinced that that's the same literary image at all. In fact, and I don't have my Greek Testament, I'm not even sure that's the same Greek word that's used in Acts 2 for the times to follow. Luke chapter 3, And as the people were in expectation, and all men reasoned in their hearts concerning John, whether aptly he were the Messiah, John answered, saying unto them, all. I indeed baptize you with water, but there comes he that is mightier than I, the latch of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire, whose fan is in his hand, thoroughly to cleanse his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his garment. But the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. And John says, I baptize you with water, but Jesus is going to baptize you with fire. And it's going to be a baptism of judgment so that the chaff is burned up in questionable fire. And on the day of Pentecost, I take that the, uh, the Holy Spirit come upon the church is the refining of God, the judgmental fire of God, but the church is spared because the church so is what's the significance of the, of the fiery tongues rather than just fiery doves or fiery something else? Well, I don't, I don't think that tongues are being understood properly by the question, perhaps. I don't think that means that it looked like a tongue in the mouth, and they're like licks of fire. You know, fire flickers, and it's, it appeared that everyone was on fire, and yet no one was really concerned. Then, isn't it in that very passage that he talks about that he had to speak uh, in different times? Yes, now that word, glossolalia, does refer to the tongue in the mouth, and specifically the human language formed by it. Does the shaking imagery here, is that um, a reflection of the idea of, of, of shaking wheat to get rid of the chaff? Uh, I don't think so. Because that usually, especially in uh, Psalm 1 and so forth, is an image not of shaking, but of uh, being tossed in the air that the wind might drive off the chaff. I and mean, the heavier the grain falls to the ground. So uh, well, I think this is a case where in California, you can understand this. God is going to shake the earth, and only those buildings that have been made strong are going to stand. And the only, the only thing that's going to stand as God continues in history to shake is going to be His kingdom. So we should expect through history, and especially consummated at the end, that the kingdom of the Antichrist, the kingdom of man, those things which are not part of the kingdom of God, will continually be shaken down and shaken down. Throughout history, what does remain? If you look at the Roman Empire, you look at the history of Western Europe, you look at the Eastern world and so forth, the only thing that remains constant since the coming of Christ is God, the Church of Jesus Christ. John. I don't believe that Peter is talking about something that's taking place now, but it is theologically true that that is taking place. That is to say, we wouldn't we wouldn't learn that from that passage. 
in that passage, Peter is talking about the consummation of all things. Remember the mockers have said, where is the promise of his coming? And then just like the flood came, so now the flood of fire is going to come. And uh, God's judgment is sure. The consummation will usher in the new heavens and new earth, but in consummation form. We are now in the new heavens and the new earth already. If any man is in Christ Jesus, behold, there is a new creation, Paul says. Yeah, the day is coming where um, we're going to enter into God's kingdom wherein righteousness dwells. Where he said, there is nothing impure that now taints the world. That's not true now, and yet we have entered into his kingdom, and he has started the new creation order already. <coughs> One more question. Okay. Is that through the whole group? Would you like to hear a lesson on biblical angelology, like what the angels are doing for you tonight? Okay. I'll try to do that. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come into your presence mindful of the, uh, the fear of God that should be in our hearts as we approach you. We're not fearful and afraid because you have cast us off. We are fearful because we know you're a consuming fire and we must show reverence and awe before you. And yet we do come boldly through our Savior Jesus Christ. We ask that you might tonight change our hearts and open our ears and our minds that we might hear what Jesus has to say to us from heaven. We hear the warning that if those who in the old covenant did not survive when they refused you speaking on earth, we too will not survive if we refuse you here and speak with the Please help us to hear you all right. Help us to give diligence to make sure we're not refusing what you have for us. We also ask tonight that you would give us grateful hearts. We confess that it's easy for us to become self-centered and to to look at the affairs of this world in a way which is not at all true to your way of seeing things, but is tainted by our own sin and selfishness. We pray that you would make us a grateful people, so that thanksgiving would characterize us, and with that impulse we might be able to worship you tonight. Make us a thankful congregation. We pray that we would see a difference even this Lord's Day as we come to you and worship you. And we not only do it with reverence and awe, but we do it with grateful hearts for all the good things you've done for us. Lord, we thank you for the unspeakable gift of Jesus Christ and the salvation of us all. We thank you for the kingdom in which you have placed us. We thank you for the security of the walls of that kingdom and the foundations of that kingdom, knowing that as you continue through history to shape all things in creation, knowing that a day is coming where you will find and shake down everything that remains that is unrighteous that we will stand because we have been placed in the unshakable kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How we thank you for these benefits that we enjoy. We pray for lives that are transformed through them. In Jesus' name.